Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound. And you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Before we begin, I want to bring your attention to The Trigger Hub. For those of you who do not know, my book is published via a publisher called Welbeck, which works in partnership with a mental health hub called Trigger. Time to Talk has partnered with Trigger to give the Time to Talk community access to affordable ebooks and other resources, and I would love for you to check out the dedicated page. Books are a gateway to many worlds and is the reason I set up the self-healing book club, the Time to Talk book club, which brings together other self-healers with the ambition to build in greater self-education, personal growth and positive mental health. Trigger is doing amazing things in the world of mental health and by buying from Trigger, you are helping support their authors like myself with a proportion also going to Shoremind, a mental health charity that has been a huge supporter of the Time to Talk book going back to when it was a mere idea. So for you, if you want 15% off books, head over to triggerhub.org forward slash Alex homes and use the discount code Alex Holmes 15. That's Alex with a capital A, Holmes with a capital H, 15. Let's do what we can to support people who are struggling with their mental health difficulties as best we can today and always. Thank you. Now, let's get on with the show. Today is World Suicide Prevention Day. Later on in the show, I will be chatting to the regular people around elements around this topic. So if you are sensitive to conversations around suicide, if you're sensitive to those really intense traumatic topics, exercise, self-care and self-compassion and please tread with care Um but that's the nature of the conversation today. And it's a difficult conversation to be having, but these are the conversations that we need to have around suicide and how we can help prevent the number of suicides that are going up. So yeah, today is World Suicide Prevention Day. And I wanted to just share a story, just um, a candid story. So this time in... 2019 I came back from a dark place and it's not that I was suicidal but it was more of a deep depression and I remember coming back to Instagram and I didn't even know it was World Suicide Prevention Day I had no idea that there was a day dedicated to this and each time in September it just reminds me of where I was coming from and the kind of person I was back then. And so each year I really try my hardest to dedicate some space to that time and the people that I know who have been going through some really challenging times and with with 
depression, with anxiety, with suicidal thoughts. And it's really helped me on my journey to learning about how we can develop greater compassion and understanding around why people decide that suicide is the option for them. But for those of you who have read my book, you will know that there was a moment where I wasn't online for a long time. And the experience of being online has always been a challenging one for me. It is a place that's dark, and I always think of it as a dark place. And I do think that some of it is to do with the fact that I have my phone on dark mode a lot of the time. So I look at everything as quite dark. Everything's, um, especially even my Instagram is on dark mode. My phone is on dark mode. So, and I just prefer it that way. But what I found was that platforms, particularly Twitter, are riddled with people who are trying to become the one, the only, and the best. And in doing so, there are a lot of people who are willing to tear you down. And each time I went onto Twitter, I felt like I was in a battlefield. I was constantly in conversations, I was in arguments, I was in places where I was easily misunderstood, conversations were taken out of context, things were not safe on that platform. So one day when I was laying up in bed and I was getting ready to go to drama school, at this point I was uh, doing part-time drama school at Kingdom School, Ashley Waters' is a drama school. And I woke up on a Sunday um, in May, I think this was 2018, and there was a list published on Twitter. And the list was a list of abusers in the creative industry. And it did say a list of abusers in the creative industry um, with a bunch of men's names who and their, and their crime, essentially. I'm not going to go into what it said about other people because that's for them. But it came up and it said that I was an abuser. And I harassed women and was violently homophobic. That was the nature of the abuse. Um, and for me, that set in motion uh, a chain of events in my mind that really disrupted my sense of self. Now, For me, it was the last straw. Like, I always feel some kind of way about discussing this um, because people always ask me, why does he always talk about this? And why can't he just move on? And why is he still hung up on this? And believe me, I have moved on. It's just a part of me does go out, a part of me does feel super empathetic and compassionate to the Alex at the time who was reading that. And, but in moving on, I had to come to terms with so many different things. So, one of those things was reality. And the reality is that you aren't going to be able to stop people from saying things about you. You cannot control what people say or how they act, but you can act differently. And it was in that experience that taught me something valuable and important as well. Another thing, um, it taught me that there will be times in life where things don't go your way and the people you thought cared about you and supported you won't. And that things change and that people change. So for those of you who have followed me for a long time, you'll know that my intentions are largely positive. And I think about that as a value system often. I think about how we are so often caught up thinking that people are good and bad and it becomes quite moralistic. And it can be a fair assessment, you know, there are, we are taught that there are good things and that there are bad things. 
But what if we considered for a moment that there is a generally positive intention for actions that don't always reap a positive result? So when people put together that list and decided it was time for me to feel the blow, it was with a positive intention. It was to bring to light the people who had been accusing and causing so much pain to women and queer people and being a voice for them on the internet anonymously. Unfortunately for me, I was collateral damage and needless to say, those claims on me were unsubstantiated and untrue. But there was something, but there was nothing, sorry, that I could do at the time but simply sit back and let it unfold because it became a thing where I just felt powerless to do anything or to say anything and I kind of put it aside I worked through it with my therapist it's a very challenging time when you are, when you don't feel you're believed and you feel as if you're persecuted and you feel in all of those things. And in the initial phases of this, of these kind of, of this kind of news, that's the, those are the reactions. And these are justifiable reactions to have. But I had to sit down and I had to think to myself, somebody out there has experienced a a violation to themselves. Somebody out there has felt as if power was taken away from them, as if agency was taken away from them. And that is not something that I want for anybody to feel. And unfortunately, my name got caught up in the mix by association probably um by mistaken identity maybe these things happen but it this it caused a chain of events in me trying to understand myself and who i am in all of this and had this never happened i don't know what kind of conversations i'd be having today but it made me deeply, deeply empathetic to the situation, to what happens when people cause traumatic experiences for other people and how we react to those experiences. But it came up again and it came up again this year. And so it was something that really shook me and because it made me, it brings me back down to reality each and every time because it's something for me to remember and to remind myself that pain is contagious. And a lot of the time, people are just searching for ways to make you aware of the pain that they are going through. People cause pain in other people, but we perpetuate it within ourselves and we want other people to feel that too. So it's a two-way thing. And I was taken off those books promptly and I went through a deal of pain and I called my friend up and I ranted and I was upset and teary and I cried. I sat there and I just like, you know what? I have no idea why this is happening to me, but it's happening. And I was heartbroken. And I was heartbroken because I felt as if I couldn't do anything right. I felt as if I am working for a world that is fundamentally trying to survive, but also there are people who are willing to bring you down and they're really willing to harm you, especially when most of your intentions are positive and you just try to, to live a whole some <laughs> um, and wholehearted life as well. And 
when these things come back up, it just reminds you that there are so much, so many people hurting out there. There are so many things outside of our control, out of our locus of control that can cause us to feel lonely, broken, disconnected, and to cause ill harm and ill feeling on other people. And that's something that really put this into perspective. And I wouldn't have been able to go down this path where I work and speak to people who've been heartbroken. And, you know, I want to embark on a self-healing journey. And this is why I do that through the book club and the conversations I'm having here and the conversations I have on Instagram and with people that I genuinely have love for. Like a lot of you I've never met before, but I have love for you. Like there is, there's a space in me that just wants to create that love and create that space of belonging, of love and connection with you. And, you know, I want to help people through their darkest times because on a day like today, people are going through real dark times. So the reason I'm talking about this is because the deep depression I had been in in 2018 to 2019, and when that resurfaced in 2021, it opened up a new hole inside of me again because I was struggling to regain all of the tools I had had learned from therapy, all of the pain, I was in, in the process of healing, I'd become undone and all of the beliefs I had been working on rewiring in myself, they began to revert to their old patterns. Yeah, I mean, I've had suicidal thoughts and I'd be hard pressed to think that many people don't. I mean, we, I think I, I, <laughs> I read a lot of existentialist books and I think that we consider death quite often. <laughs> like, um, I don't want to get too... Uh, stoic in this but um we 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 should consider our deaths a lot more we consider our deaths and um it just means that we should be living for today we should make certain actions today or as soon as we can because you know there are moments in our life where things just aren't promised so yeah, I have had suicidal thoughts. I've had thought, thoughts about what that would look like and nothing as nothing so far as to be taking action or even attempting, but I have had thoughts about what that would look like and what it would be like if I wasn't here. And when I was put into those, when those situations came up, I did place myself in that, in those shoes again because I thought it would just be better if I wasn't here and this is why I'm so passionate about the things I do this is why I put my heart in everything I do this is why I make the time for people this is why I have the heart-to-heart -heart letters this is why I have I'm building sessions and I'm doing the work that I'm doing and I'm making sure that I'm good as well as helping as many people as I possibly can because I know what it's like to be in those dark spaces. I know what it's like to be among people who are in those dark spaces. I've had friends who have been suicidal, who've self-harmed. I've lost people to suicide. I've lost people to those particular elements of mental health. It makes me think a lot about depression and when we see things like I grew up being told that suicide is an easy way out, it's a coward's way out. And I had to unlearn all of those things because it's not a coward's way out at all. Suicide is not an easy way out. It's the only way to stop the pain for a lot of people. And suicide is not a sin. That's one thing we need to remember too. It is a symptom of depression is a symptom of something deeper and we need to remember that when we are speaking about suicide this week this month and going forward 
the content the content I have had on this podcast for the past few weeks and going forward in this month have been about psychosis like we've had that with David Harewood suicide and addiction are coming up because later on in this show we'll hear from Josiah Hartley who wrote a book called The Boy in Between and he spoke about his depression. Next week we will hear from David Posers who speaks to me about addiction. He's got a book out called The Weight of Air and going forward I would love to speak to Johnny Benjamin who we spoke to in the very early stages of this podcast. I think it was like episode four or something and we spoke about The Stranger on the Bridge but He's got a book called The Book of Hope, where he speaks to 101 writers about hope. So these are the conversations I'm having. These are the things I'm building because I know what it feels like to be alone. I know what it feels like to be in a space where you consider life ending and not being here. We look at addiction and how people are not treating the causes, but we're treating the symptoms. And then, and then I think further on, we're going to have conversations around mental health and students to round off the the month. But I wanted to give this message just before I left, just because I felt like people can get caught up and you know and forget why I'm doing this and myself I can forget why I'm doing this and I want to just make it very clear that I'm doing this because I know what it feels like to be alone and I really want to create a space where people don't feel that and if it means coming to the podcast and listening in on a conversation that could well be have had with you sitting in the room with me or if that means you know, reading the heart-to-heart -heart letters or sending an anxiety letter in for me to read and I can kind of give advice and pointers. Or if that means buying my book or joining the book club, that's some, that's a, those are spaces where you can go. And I just wanted to create that space for you with those options. So one thing I want to make sure that I leave here before I end, before we go into the conversations is that you are not alone. You belong here and you are loved. Okay. If you want to join a community of self healers, sign up to the book club where we embark upon a self healing journey together and learn how to navigate the depth of our world so i think we're going to break down chapters and figure out practices of how to kind of live holistically um in our you know our self journey our self-healing journey and our processes um and i'm in the process of putting together some workshops to expand deeper with you and for men i have a monthly check-in with manual that I do once a month. So if you're interested in that, just click the link in the description. For all of you, I'm speaking at Token Man in October, and that's online. All of this stuff is online for now, um, alongside some other men to discuss heartbreak, grief, and more. So get your tickets for that in the bio. My Henley Literature Festival in October, on October the 3rd, where I'm speaking to Francesca Spector, Clemmy Telford, and that would be an amazing weekend. And finally, just look after yourselves. Exercise self-compassion where you can and, you know, that you are loved, you are cared for. And let's get on with the rest of the show.
Welcome, Josh, to Time to Talk. Thank you for joining me here. Cheers. Thanks for having me. It's, a, it's an absolute pleasure. <laughs> no worries. No worries. Um, I'm looking forward to getting into talking about your book and about your life. It sounds, you know, there's a, there's a lot in here. Um, there's a lot, there's a lot that went down. Um, but first of all, before we get into all of that, I, as you know, listeners know, we start a conversation with checking in. Like, so how are you? Well, just like everyone, I have good days and bad days like everyone else. But uh, today's been a good day. I'm doing all right. It's such a, <laughs> such a scary, anxious time for everyone at the moment. It's just taking it day by day, really. Mm-hmm. And of course, you're, you've just launched your book as well. So you're doing a lot of being here, there, everywhere. So I can imagine that that is a bit, um, <laughs> that's exciting. Um, cracking on with all of that, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. It's so nice to hear what people, it's been you know such a long time you know, in the process of starting writing it to now, it's just lovely to hear what people have to say about it. <laughs> amazing, amazing. Um, so I wanted to ask you if you had a quote that you brought to the table, if, you, if there's anything that you want to share with us today before we get into the show. Relevant, and I'm sure we'll uh, come on to it later, but it's a quote from my psychiatrist, actually, that uh, mm-hmm. when in the grips of depression, he told me, this isn't your fault. Depression isn't your fault. It's an illness. And uh, I didn't see it that way at the time. I thought I'd done something to deserve to be severely depressed. And he said, it's not a thought you wouldn't blame yourself if you had cancer. Don't blame yourself uh, if you've got depression. And that's that's my quote, because it really, really helped me. Yeah, super important. Super important. I mean, we'll get into it a bit later, but um, one, one of the things I like to have a conversation about is shame um, when it comes to these things. And it's very interesting how, you know, people can say depression is their fault or feel like depression is their fault. And, you know, um, and, that's, and that, is, that is pretty much shaming. You're shaming yourself and it's learned behaviour from the society we live in, no? So um, there's all of that. But there's so much to, to get into. Let's Let's jump into it. So... Yeah, so I'm here with uh, with Josh Hartley, Josiah Hartley, um, and he's written a book with his mum called The Boy Between. His mum's Amanda Prowse, and um, it's called The Boy Between, A Mother and Son's Journey from a World Gone Grey. Now, do you want to give me a bit of a breakdown of the book and like where it came from? Yeah, it's my, sorry, it's my journey sort of into and out of my recovery with depression, because... I hate to admit it, but I was so ignorant about mental health uh, mm-hmm. when I was like 16. I just didn't really even know depression fully existed. I didn't know the difference between depression and just being a bit sad, to be honest with you. So when it started mm. to happen to me, I had no clue what was going on. And um, Yeah. How old are you? Don't, you don't mind me asking. I'm at 23. 23? Okay. I, it's it's okay. the beard. I look a lot older now. <laughs> if I shave <laughs> this, I look about 12. So <laughs> We were at sort of real deadlock. Um I just couldn't have these conversations I needed to be having with my parents at this at this time. We were living in the same house, mm-hmm. and when someone's yeah. severely depressed, it affects everything in the house. You can't you can't escape from it. And we were just sort of I wasn't getting better. We were we were struggling to have these conversations face to face. And my mum sent me an email saying, "How can I help you today?" Mm-hmm. And I responded, and I said, "Well, could you open my window, get me a cup of tea, just <laughs> just uh, that sort of stuff?" And she was like, "Oh, what? Like you're ill?" And uh, I was like, "I am ill." And uh, that sort of changed her mindset a little bit to sort of mm. how she could deal with this. And then the emails went back and forth for a, for a couple of weeks, a month. And uh, mum's editor came to the house to check on one of her books. And uh, my mum, without my permission, showed them to the editor. And she said, well, you know what? This is a book here. This could this could help people. Mm. And it sort of went from mm. there. Okay. So just to say that um, so your mum is, uh, is an author, a best-selling author. And, um, you know she kind of you both worked together on this book and before we get into that that in particular but I want to kind of pick on some of the stuff you some of the things you just said like you know so was it when did when did you um realize that you kind of had depression you just said you you said you were ignorant about it and then you know but and kind of we jumped to you know having these email exchanges with your mom and whatnot what happened in between I think I was first okay with admitting to myself that I had depression at the mid to end of my first year at uni. Uh, before that, I didn't really know what was happening to me. I was just, I felt isolated and down and, and sad, but I wouldn't have classed it as depression. But that's because I didn't mm-hmm. know about depression. Looking back, I was clearly depressed for a lot longer than that. 
but that's when I'd have first said, like, I'd have first recognised myself as depressed, end of my first year at uni. Mm. Mm. And how did that how did that show up? Um, I was sleeping more more often than I wasn't. When I was getting out of bed, it was to drink and drink heavily, get blackout drunk. Mm. And uh, oh, wow. I was only really sort of seeing other people to drink. Um, I hadn't gone to lectures in months, hadn't gone to my labs or anything like that. And sort of no one cared. And that sort of really fit, fed into my depression because, you know, at school, you're in such a closed bubble. You're in such, you miss one lesson and someone's like, where were you? And like uni, you can miss a month or two at a time and no one, no one notices. So it sort of really mm-hmm. helped my uh, illness take, take a hold. Mm-hmm. So this was around four years ago. Yeah. Yeah. Around four years ago. Um, so kind of like, like walk me, th- walk me through how, when you got to uni, what that whole feeling was like because you say it was in your first year of uni so you know a lot of people who who had the opportunity to go to uni would have experienced this would have experienced getting their a-level results would have experienced getting excited for university packing up your bags having the last summer <laughs> like and then heading over to uh, you went to southampton yeah 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 um heading heading over to heading over to university and so what was like so kind of walk me through kind of how like the, the steps in which it kind of became apparent that you had this depression with you looking back i up until my a-level exams i just switched off i was rarely mm. in my bed i wasn't doing any work i uh ultimately didn't get the grades i wanted for so i got in southampton through clearing and southampton's a great uni but instead of being mm. like, I'm going to Southampton, this is great. It was just, it felt just awful. Um, mm. Looking back, it just doesn't matter. I could have got to any uni in the world doing any course and I'd have still felt just absolutely crap. And mm. uh, that's, looking back, it's just not right. And then on my mm. first day of getting there, you know, um, my parents helped me, you know, unpack, put up fairy lights and posters in the in the room, all that stuff. And uh, I was looking around <laughs> and these people, you know, just, just casual chats, people who'd never met before, meeting up for beers that night, stuff like that. And I just mm. fully felt like I just couldn't talk to anyone. So I just mm. I just hid in my room for the first couple of days. And it was just mm. just looking back, just not right. But I felt mm. I felt so alone because it's like, what's wrong with me? Why can't I go go knock on mm. the door next door and just say, I'm Josh, um, you know. This is what this is who I am and like let's let's connect in some way. And there was just a, a really big disconnect there, wasn't there? Yeah, yeah. I just I just felt really alone and completely just just different and that's part mm. of depression depression's like nastiest tricks it just makes you feel completely alone and like you just can't reach out and talk to people mm, mm. so did your mum like try and reach out to you while you're there because you know like you know when when I'm when you know when a parent like when their child has gone to university it's like okay so they're a child but they're away but so I want to make sure they're okay I want to make sure they're eating I want to make sure they're, yeah. they're cleaning and stuff so what uh what was that like uh for your mum do you know and what was it yeah. like for you because you would um, did you get messages and calls and yeah stuff? I used to I used to it feels horrible to say but I used to just lie to her once or twice mm. a week on the phone just being like yeah I'm fine I'm going to my lectures doing my laundry eating vegetables occasionally it's all all right but in reality mm. I I was slipping fast and mm. yeah so you got through yeah, ma- so you got through first year. Managed to scrape through for first year, luckily, mm. and then um, mm. second year, um, I had a studio flat to myself, and that's when. Oh, so you were alone? Yeah, yeah. And uh, okay. was that was that intentional? Um, it's no, not initially. I was living in a student house, but the um, series of things happened. But I was put in the attic room, and I couldn't even stand up in it. I'm six foot two and the, the ceiling was so low, I could barely stand up. Oh, and uh, no. it was just, I was, uh, I moved out into a studio apartment, which, you know, on the surface, it was was lo- lovely. It would mm. have been a really nice place to spend the year if it hadn't have been for depression. And I just uh, sort of wasn't seeing anyone just getting lower and lower. I spent mm. literally weeks at a time in that room. Um, mm. I remember in the, some days I'd look out the window and that'd be a real treat. And I'd look mm. up and be like, oh, it's daytime, it's nice. But when things got really bad, sort of all day and night sort of blurred into one, um, mm. which was just, I just never, never left that room. It was, I wasn't mm. washing, I wasn't doing my laundry, nothing like that. Everything, all of that, I just failed. Hadn't gone to uni in months. Um, 
it was just really putrid. Yeah. Who else is in your life at this time, anyway? Uh, my first person that comes to my mind is my half sister Hannah, who was mm-hmm. who was nine at the time. Okay. And I uh, was speaking to her. You know, she's only a little kid, but speaking to her on the phone, <laughs> asking about you know, asking about her school and stuff. And she, mm. uh, without knowing it, you know, got me through a lot, knowing I had to be there for her. And partly, I think, I think people, you know, young people say it's so so competitive with each other. If they mean to be or not, everything can feel like a a race or a competition, or you've got to win and mm-hmm. be the best. And it's like to admit that you're not doing so great. Uh, it feels like you're falling behind that race and of course there isn't a race mm. it's just you yeah you do it's yeah. take life it, it doesn't it doesn't matter if you get a degree at 50 or 21 it's still mm-hmm. it's still a massive achievement and uh yeah but it doesn't always feel feel like that at the time and i think that's partly why i struggled mm. to talk to people my own my own age group and when i was it was mainly to to sort of get blackout drunk rather than anything mm. productive yeah yeah so do you think it was the pressure of going to uni the pressure of having to know what you needed to do next and having to and doing all of that that put you in that state or what do you think i think i was depressed depressed before i went there but it really allowed me to just fall without anyone properly checking up on me at that time Mm. and uh gone from you know school and living at home with your parents such a sheltered environment you've always you know daily got someone checking on you but now it's just not there anymore so you can just you know fall Mm. Did you finish uni? No, I dropped out after a. Um, I don't want to go into too much details okay. about about that, the time, but I uh, had a means to end my life in Southampton, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. didn't didn't go through with it in the end. My mm-hmm. and then about Christmas time in my second year, I moved back in with my parents in Bristol, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. Uh, stayed horizontal in their house for about six months. <laughs> just mm. in a mental fog trying mm. I try different medications at, at that time and all sorts but nothing really really was helping me mm. Um, mm. but yeah. then I tried to go to Bristol University and sort mm. of so first year we did first year at Bristol and started not going to lectures started getting blackout mm. drunk lot several nights a week and it was yeah, all just and it was really hard to admit a second time because Mm. everyone saw this as a fresh opportunity for me you know my grandparents my parents sort of this is a new mm. chapter in your life you can finally you know do what you want get that degree and do do what you want mm. to do but to be honest I even with the degree I'm not sure that I would have been doing what I wanted to do um mm. so the second time was almost because I knew I was going to cause in what I thought I was going to cause heartbreak to my grandparents and family again mm. for the dropping mm. out a second time there's a uh, uh, one night in a uh, Bristol I got blackout drunk um uh, put my my wrist through a uh, window. Uh, oh, wow. Woke up in A and E. Oh no! And um, woke up in A and E, and that was sort of a real sort of it couldn't have got much worse than that, really. Um, no. The nurse said I was quite lucky, to be honest, and I I didn't feel very lucky at the time. Mm. But um, my my, uh, my stepdad came and picked me up, and uh, went home, and he just he just collapsed on the floor. He was mm. like, "We just we just don't know what to do. How can we help you? We just." you know, you're not getting better. And mm. I wasn't getting better. We just, and at that point, seeing someone I you know, loved and respected that broken because mm. of my illness, it was the mm. first time I sort of really felt I had to get better for them as well as myself. Because mm. up until that point, it was, when you're depressed, it's hard to get better for yourself. You don't care about yourself. So it's hard to want to improve. But it was, I think, wanting to get better for them helped me. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. So what were the processes to getting better? You mentioned that at the beginning you had a psychiatrist and what was the process to you for to get better? When did you enter therapy and what was the what was the therapeutic express process like um, for you? I sort of went to a couple of different GPs and all of them were felt rushed and a bit bit rubbish really. I felt mm-hmm. partly to my illness and partly to the a massive amount of time pressure GPs are under nowadays. They just wanted to rush me out. They just wanted to sign me an antidepressant and get me out of there. And mm. um, I tried a couple of different antidepressants, and I think they can be great, but for me personally, they just they just didn't work. I was mm. so foggy on them. I was allergic to one and was getting hives all over my body, which which was on top of being depressed, pretty ghastly. And then I tried this other one, and it was um, 
it was just so foggy. I felt I felt slightly drunk all the time. I was sleeping like a minimum of sixteen hours a day, and when I wasn't, I was just eating. So I gained yeah. gained a lot of weight quickly. And yeah. but I woke up one morning and was like, I, "These pills are doing more damage. They're doing more harm than good right now." So I fully mm. um, had to wean myself off them because I, I went cold turkey and threw up my stomach lining in Paddington, which wasn't <laughs> wasn't great. But uh, I think for me personally, no no medication was the, was right for me at that time and uh because it, it allowed me to sort of think slightly more clearly not on tablets um that was a good turning point and also just the said said before that it's not your fault you're you're ill you need to stop blaming yourself for having depression because you're never mm-hmm. going to get better if you're constantly like i deserve to feel this way mm-hmm. so so just like give me a breakdown of like a, a typical day writing with your mom so, because I, I i'm so curious as to, as to what this was like yeah in the early stages um mm-hmm. i just fully didn't fully know how to get my thoughts and ideas right down like that um i was so nervous as well what people were going to think because i'd never really done much writing before so in the back of my mind i was always just like i'll, I'll write like a thousand words show it to someone and they're just going to be like almost laugh you know and mm-hmm. uh, um so for the first it wasn't the first like couple of days i was um almost doing bullet points and then with my mom helping them expand them into full sentences but mm-hmm. um which which felt like it took forever yeah but, but um no we got there in the end it was a it was good i was extremely dyslexic which uh mm-hmm. is given enough time i can get it down but it does take me a lot longer and things like punctuation mm-hmm. i struggle with but you know at the end of the day those the words are way more important than the punctuation or that stuff anyway to be mm-hmm. honest mm-hmm. um mm-hmm. So was it a thing where you would write something and then you, and you put it all together and your mum would read over it and say this that this doesn't fit this fits here this yeah yeah exactly sense. yeah yeah. yeah so you know like it's funny I, so do you think that whatever routine that you picked up for your um like for, the, for your writing of the book do you think that you would be able to do that again is that something that you'd be able to do yeah absolutely I think it would take me slightly longer than most just because yeah. just because dyslexia but absolutely. Um, yeah. I really enjoy writing, to be honest. And there's a there's a lot of things I want to get down. Um, mm. But I will, there's a there's a couple of non um, sorry fiction stuff that I want to I want to mm. write. But I want to sort of develop my skills before I write. You know, completely make up a story from scratch. I think I want to yeah. do a non another non fiction book to sort of hone my skills a bit. Hone my skills yeah. isn't the wrong words. But you know, you know what I mean. I know what you mean. Just kind of like get the experience down. Yeah, and finish yeah. the book. And yeah. Um, so that's really cool. So all right. So how do you feel now about all of this? Like you're at your, you're 23, you know, this was a, this was a particular point in your life. You're here now, you've written this, but how do you feel about it? I say in the book and what I'm hoping is Mm -hmm. something that happens in your life doesn't have to define the rest of your life. Um, You know, I could go on to live a great happy life and this could just be a footnote in just a happy, you know, happy history. Mm -hmm. Um, and also just like everyone, good days, bad days, um, especially at the moment, everything's so up in the air. Um, I just sort of take each each day as it comes, really. And uh, mm-hmm. the feedback so far has been extremely positive because I just, I had to accept that when you put yourself out there like this, there's going to be people who, who love it, there's going to be people who hate it, and that's part of it. And I, I knew I had to be mentally well enough to be able to cope with that. And I, I think I am right now. And the response has been been lovely so far. So I know there's no magic cure to any of this, and I know there's no, um, like, there's no spell or pill that you can take. Um, ironically, um, tell me about kind of like the the physical changes you saw in yourself, like with when you started to, when things started to happen, and like because I know there's with depression, a lot of people they can either put on weight, they can lose weight, sleep more, um, sleep less. It's very interesting, kind of like um symptoms that come depending on the person so what were some of the physical changes that you saw happen with you um throughout that time well it's mad how slow all these things happen no, like no one wakes up with depression it just no. slowly slowly like chips away at you piece by piece until there's just nothing left um i think mentally when i sorry before physically before i was on the medication i was losing weight because i sort of just gave up in a lot of ways and eating was one of the ways i gave up in um, mm-hmm. At my absolute lowest, I wasn't even thirsty. I gave up on thirst. Um, oh, wow. I couldn't look myself, look at myself in a mirror. I just hated what I looked like. Almost in my head, I saw like this demonized version of myself. Um, mm. I stopped showering. 
stop looking after myself in any whatsoever. Um, I was just, you know, unpleasant, but I smelled. I was just, it's just disgusting, really. And um, it's the, you know, the strapline, the world gone grey because I didn't really see colour at that point. Everything was just, just black and white, really. Explain that. Talk to me a bit more about that. Um, it's hard to describe, but just slowly, like super slowly, like so, so subtly, I didn't notice it at first. But just the colours mm. drained out of the world till just everything felt grey. Um, even even the sky just felt just just miserable. So when you say felt grey, you mean that it was like a kind of a lack of almost like an Instagram filter stuff? just on the world. Okay, okay. And how did that make you feel? Uh, hopeless, just completely Empty. numb, numb to everything. I felt yeah. like um, nothing could attempt me out of that bed. Like just yeah. absolutely. My absolute favourite artist, main stage of Glastonbury, would have, or my bed, I'd have chosen my bed. Like, just nothing would have, <laughs> nothing would have just tempted me away. Which, looking back, is just obviously clearly not right. Okay. It's, it's interesting because, um, we, you know, like, I'm ch- like, I know that there's a, there's an upside to this, you know, to a kind of the stuff you come through. Um, and like, how did you deal with the, the alcoholism? Because I like that. Because I think that even you be get getting drinking to the point of blackout. Yeah, that's yeah. that's a that's a very very, um. Like that's a lot of drink, depending on your stature and depending on like your 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 body makeup, um. But to get blackout and to and to wake up, hands in stitches and, you know, and then somebody's telling you that you're you're lucky to have been X Y and Z. Like, what did you? What what changes changes did you make with regards to kind of the drinking? Well, for me, unfortunately, drinking is either zero or hundred. I I struggle to like, because I don't think I properly enjoy alcohol that much. I don't enjoy one or two pints. If I, it was always, especially when I was at uni, it was twelve pints or none. There was there was never a time I had like two or three. Um, so I think I went cold turkey when I went back when I went back and moved home. And now, um, now I have one or two whilst watching rugby or something with my mates, but um, but just n- nothing like I used to. I know, mm. I know, and I and I stick to stuff like beer and uh, beer mainly because uh, I know if I just see off a, a bottle of spirits, what will happen next? So uh, I, I sort of I stay clear of booze a lot nowadays, and it's mm. when I do, I know it'll be you know in situations I can just not have that much, and uh, I'd always use booze as a coping mechanism because that blackout, that period of blackoutness um, sort of gives you um, gives you a pause from your illness. It gives you a pause from everything. You're, you're blackout drunk. So I was sort of using those pauses to sort of forget about my illness because mm. it was so prevalent when I was awake. It was just, I just didn't want to exist. So it was a way of not existing for a night by getting blackout drunk. Um, mm. But now I'd only drink on, you know, good days and days where I was feeling you know feeling jolly and happy because that's when you can enjoy alcohol in a social way with your mates you know just having a couple of pints mm. rather than that you know coping mm. mechanism mm. Mm. and when it came to when it came to diet as well what was that like yeah I was just eating absolute trash when I was on I was on a uh, antidepressant called metazapine and um mm-hmm. I was either asleep or just stuffing my face with just junk food and there was no in between. And uh, so I gained a lot of weight quickly. And um, I know, whatever, you know, just, not everyone's saying, but part of me, part of my recovery and part of me making feel better was uh, I went fully vegan and I just feel that's, that's helped me mm-hmm. a lot, which mm-hmm. I know it's not for everyone. And I know not, not a lot of, some people are kind of for their own, you know, their <laughs> intake are, aren't fully on board with that. But yeah, I know it personally mm-hmm. helped me. Yeah. What was your process for going vegan? Um, like what, like if you just walk me through, like kind of was like, all right, what am I going to eat now? How am I going to do it? Like, what was your process for it? I ran out of excuses not to, to be honest. I was like, <laughs> I was like, I, I realized I was doing a lot of things in my life that were just either not helping me or just making me kind of miserable. I think if you do things that are against what you believe morally, you're never going to be happy. If you're, mm. and it doesn't really matter what, what that is. If it's, you know, it can be anything. And I realized that I am morally didn't agree with my lifestyle at that time. So I just, I, I made a change 
for you know selfishly myself you know i think my diet does make me mentally and physically feel healthier um you know for the planet and for the animals it was just my morally just didn't really quite match up so i, I just went full overnight i just went full vegan and haven't, haven't really looked back okay okay and what was that connection like what was that connection with going vegan to mental your mental health then what um, why 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 was it vegan that you thought well, th- i was I having three go? non-vegan meals a day and i just became more and more aware that i morally don't fully agree with this and i mm. don't think you can be doing something you don't think's right that many times a day and, and be comf- that truly comfortable with it mm. Was there there wasn't any like documentaries that you saw or any books that you read um, or anything that you I've saw? Sort of, I've, watched, was... I've watched a couple afterwards, but not really. It was mm-hmm. all just sort of, um, you know, I was, I still am and, and was kind of, you know, fearful of climate change. And I thought the biggest single thing I can do is go vegan. And mm-hmm. um, also I think getting, getting the puppies, like the, the difference between a pig and a dog really isn't that much. And I thought, yeah. well, I could never eat a dog, so why do I feel like <laughs> eating a pig? And then I realised that yeah. I, I, I wasn't, so I stopped. Yeah, that's fair. So tell me some of the things that you like, some of the things that you like doing, some of the things that make you feel good. Uh, I love music. I don't mm-hmm. I don't produce or make any, but I uh, I listen to a lot. It helps. Who do, who do you listen to? What do you listen to? Um, oh, it varies. I listen to like... And the more mainstream stuff like Foles or like just stuff like that. But I listen to quite a lot of uh, quite a lot of house and techno. Uh, mm-hmm. I really like Dennis Salter. He's a he's just got a pretty great outlook on stuff. And uh, I like Mulgrab. I mentioned both him in the book actually. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, it depends. I feel like my music taste has kind of grown with Mulgrab over the years. Like he started out mm-hmm. making like a house and has just slowly moved into more industrial techno. And it's kind of I followed along the same path. I feel. Yeah. And um, I hear that you've got a business as well that you set up is at the same time. I mean, like you just really kind of just like grabbed life with like with both hands, didn't you? As soon as you kind of, as you as you just transitioned through into adulthood. But so tell us a bit about this business you've got. I fully realised that there's like I wanted to do something I was passionate about, and I know it sounds a bit silly, but I was passionate about fleeces. I just love fleeces. <laughs> I own I own so many. I just love them. Um, oh. Got a fleece every day of the week, and I just realised okay. I wanted to design and make my own fleeces. So I'm uh, I'm mm-hmm. doing that right now. Okay, why why fleeces? What um, what was it about? What is it about fleeces? That right, physically, they're just to... they're nice and comforting. You know, if you're cold, you can just put one on. And uh, they are. Too. I just uh, <laughs> even from a fashion perspective, I just love the way they look. All the yeah. I don't. Are they I'll, are they vegan friendly though? Yeah, that's 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 true. It's the ones I I make will be, <laughs> but um, <laughs> you know, some like really iconic ones. Uh, like yeah. the North Face, like Denali fleece is just just the classic. All the Patagonia ones that's right great. now. I just yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Well, what would you, what would even go into a vegan fleece? Um, well, that, that's an issue because you can get these uh, like a lot of plastic microfibers that come out in the wash. So that's not brilliant. Uh, but uh, oh, right. Okay. I think um, you can get these quite a lot of good Polartec ones. So I think I'll go with that option. Mm-hmm. But um, you can mm-hmm. get these. I really like the ones that look sort of. I don't know. But they look, they're not. They're not sheepskin, but they sort of look that sort of feel to them. Mm. But they're plastic. Yeah. So. Okay. Okay, and I guess it's—I I don't know what it's like down there in the southwest, but is it really windy and stuff? Yeah, yeah. I feel like it's really windy. Well, the second this ends, I'm putting my jacket on. <laughs> I'm, uh, I'm in the attic right now, and it's—it's uh, it's cold this time of year. All right, okay. But I, I live on the farm in the middle of nowhere, and it's—it uh, gets chilly. Yeah. Oh. it must be nice. Over, it must be nice at times, though, to look out and just kind of have—I don't know—I'm just envisaging that you've got a. Um, that you've got an amazing view you may uh, or may not you can see the seven bridge the, the bridge to wales just over hang on you can see the uh oh, you don't know what's it there's the bridge the bridge to wales just over there and there's a there's a about 70 cows in the field next door which i quite like oh okay um, okay okay spend quite a large portion of my day just cow spotting to be honest with you <laughs> yeah what about uh fitness um what about fitness did you did you take up any new reg- regimes or any um new um new ways of living i guess um i uh did a lot well not a lot of sport but i did more sport at school and sort of had that routine and then um i've always i've always loved rugby but um unfortunately got a uh got an illness called ellis danlos syndrome which means my connective tissue is extra stretchy oh wow um which means yeah sorry about that (laughs) 
um, which means my uh, I can't play a lot of sport or do a lot of exercise with just yeah yeah my fingers like fully like oh wow I, I can't His fingers um, are bending <laughs> which means I can't do a lot of sport or a lot of exercise without just getting physically just extremely fatigued and uh, I, okay. I break quite easily things dislocate oh, okay and yeah. um, but uh, so you're, you're you're kind of a superhero <laughs> a very crap one <laughs> but uh, no excuse my uh, my stepbrother Ben is moving back home today actually. Mm. And uh, mm. we're going to set up a gym in the garage. Okay. Just take it, ste- okay. take it steady. But uh, I think that will help help us all. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, that's super good. That's super good. Well, I'm super happy that you kind of like decided to, you know, put this stuff together and work two sides. So, as a final thing, like, what is the relationship like with your mum now? Um, you know, after the like leading up to all of this, so university, first year, second year, you know sending you emails about how you feel and whatnot going through writing the book together writing the book with with each other how has that impacted your relationship yeah we're extraordinarily close I feel she could ask me and I can ask her about anything and um always um right or wrongly been I'm aware of what I put my parents through with my illness and I know Mm. it's not my fault I got ill but I, I I did put them through a lot due to my illness so um, mm-hmm. to sort of be the other side of that, and uh, you know, I think they'll always worry about me in that way, but not have to be so acutely concerned about my immediate mental health. Um, yeah. It does feel good, and I know, you know, I just I just feel extremely extremely lucky to have the parents I do, and I can uh, chat to them both honestly, openly about about anything. Amazing. Okay, so final question. Do you feel optimistic about what is to come next, whether that be in the world, whether that be in what you in what you do next? Um, are you optimistic about what's going to happen? I don't want to. Uh, I don't want to lie, man. No. Um, yeah, go for it. Uh, there's a lot of things in the world that really, really scare me right now. My mm-hmm day-to-day life I do feel optimistic me as a person and myself I feel optimistic I think when my mental health is good I'll be able to look after myself and things will be all right but there's so many things out of my control that I do not feel optimistic about the 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 state the state of the planet so the Siberian ice what's the date today it's the 29th of October Siberian sea ice still hasn't started to refreeze that's never happened before that scares me a lot it hasn't started to refreeze. No, that's the first time that's ever happened in, in this particular part of Siberia. The permafrost wow. isn't frozen. That means we can leak up large quantities of methane out into the... out into, the, And methane is, off the top of my head, something like 26 times better at heating the planet than CO2. And these mm. methane stores are getting leaked. And that scares me a lot. The um, And that's just... And some people just deny all this is even happening, anything to do with us. That scares me. Because it's like yeah. the facts are out there. Just, you know, people denying facts. That scares me. Fake news. That scares me. People mm-hmm. having, I know compassion is very important to you, but I don't know. I like to think as a species, we used to be compassionate, but right now mm-hmm. it's just, it feels lacking. It feels like, especially in this lockdown, um, lockdown feels like it's, when you're not seeing anyone else, not leaving your house, it's very easy to feel like it's it's your house versus the world instead of just a community mm-hmm. and a society where we're all in it together, and that mm-hmm. that scares me. Um, so I'm all for lockdown, and I think it's the best best course of action because it's uh, we've got to protect the most vulnerable in society with the lockdown, but mm. we've just got to be kind kinder to each other. Definitely. Definitely. And this is what I keep saying. I mean, and this is why I'm so passionate about compassion. <laughs> um, I want to admit, I want to see people treat people better, you know, and I think that there is something, uh, something definitely in that. And even if, and it's, it's emanated out, as, as you just said, it's emanated out to how we treat the planet. We don't treat the planet with compassion. If we don't treat where we live with compassion, how are we going to end up treating one another with it? Um, so I'm definitely really interested as to where where we go from here um, and kind of what happens next. But for now, and grounded in the present, the boy between a mother's a mother and son's journey from a world gone grey. This is your first book, 
congratulations well done um and guys you can get this in all your good bookstores i'm gonna um put it into my show notes and you can get that um where can people find you josh um i'm on instagram at josar hartley 97 that's probably the best way of of reaching me Mm -hmm. um and if you want to if you read the book and want to ask my mum anything she's amanda prowse on instagram as well yeah Thank you guys for listening and thank you for joining me, Josiah. It's been my absolute pleasure and it's uh, lovely to meet you. Yeah, and um, guys, you know where to find me and I'll catch you next week. <laughs>